Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Isaiah 53. Which might seem like a strange passage when you can look down at the sermon title and see that we're going to be looking somewhat at the resurrection today. Um, But here's one of those places in the Old Testament where you see that the resurrection was not an afterthought, but something that was even talked about hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. So here we have Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12, on page 1147 in your pew Bibles. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. And God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word today. Now that as we hear your word, that it would, um, that it would change how we think about uh, who you are, the ways you work in this world, the ways that you have called us to live and to be in this world, and what it is that you have in store for the future for us and for the world. God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word above all the other words, that you'd help us to be more tuned in to your word than all the other words. And God, we pray that you would continue to change us by your word and your spirit into the people you've created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Turning into Luke chapter 24, verses 30 to 49, we get to see a bit of, um, of some of what happened after Jesus was raised from the dead. This is Luke 24, verses 30 to 49, which can be found on page 16 
45 in your pew Bibles. This comes just after Jesus has appeared to two of the disciples walking on the road, and he explains all these things to them, and they don't recognize him, and then they do recognize him. So that's where we begin. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road, and he opened and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. We're there. We go. Now, one of these days, we're just going to rope off the back four pews. Just move everybody forward. I'm just kidding. Um, now, I want to begin this week where we left off last week, which for those of you who were here last week, should jog your memory a little bit. Uh, for those of you who were not here last week and thinking, well, then I'm not going to understand what's going on, that's not true. You, you'll be able to follow what's going on, no problem. But where we ended last week was with a, um, a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. Read kind of an extended quote. This is, I'm just going to read a little bit of it here, where he says, There are no ordinary people. Let's restart. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is, with, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is where we begin, because I think it's really important to keep this in mind, this difference of perspective. It's really easy to start thinking that um, things in, well, nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations are so much more important than we are because they go on for so much longer than we do. What do we live? You know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. 
And these things go on so much longer. And what he's trying to point out is we're only looking at a little bit of the picture when we're looking at our life now before we die, if that's what we're thinking of as all of life. But if we actually believe what the scriptures tell us, that there is a life after death, that we go on much, much longer than any of these things that will perish. And so when held in that, uh, in that way, hopefully that helps us to uh, view those things differently as well as the people we interact with differently. Now, that's where we ended last week. That's where we begin this week. Um, and something that you have probably picked up on if you've been paying any attention to uh, the political situation recently is we have an election coming up. This is the most important election of my lifetime. So I've been told this, along with every other election I've lived through so far, (laughs) but this time it really matters because the stakes are high. Because what we are voting on does not only determine who gets elected right now, but it determines the course of the future for generations. You've heard this, right? Do you believe it? Maybe. Maybe. We're going to come back to that. But before we come back to that, I want us to talk about what goes on in Paul's day. We were looking at this also, where Paul has been getting in trouble. Getting in trouble... Um, basically because he has a reputation. He has a reputation as someone who has been spreading the message of Jesus, not only around uh, Jewish circles, but he's been going out to the outsiders. He's been talking to the people that nobody wants to be able to come to God unless they become Jewish first. And well, that's what Paul's been doing. And so when he comes to Jerusalem, they... They're not happy about this. And so they stir up rumors. They say he's brought a Gentile into the temple. They try to beat him there. A Roman guard kind of pulls him out. Then Paul goes back and he talks to the people again. And they still want him killed. That's where we kind of pick up the story this week. And we see how Paul is affected by the politics of the day. How Paul is wise to the politics of the day. And how he doesn't... um, he didn't fall into the political traps of the day uh, in that way. And we'll see what that has to do with us in a minute. But follow along. This is Acts starting in chapter 22, the very end, starting verse 30. We'll go through the beginning part of chapter 23. Starting verse 30, it says, The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was a high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. 
Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. All right. This is a tense political situation, isn't it? We have the Pharisees on one side, we have the Sadducees on another, and yet they have been able to work together at various times and ways, um, particularly if they have a common enemy. Might sound familiar. And yet it's still a tense relationship where they're able to work together, and it doesn't take very much to set them off and at each other. Did you notice this? Paul noticed this. He knows the situation. He knows the situation because he is a Pharisee. He has been a Pharisee. And um, he knows the political situation in Jerusalem. He knows it well. And he actually knows it well here to be able to kind of exploit the political tensions. And so here he is on trial. The Sanhedrin is meeting. We've got the Pharisees. We've got the Sadducees. And before we get into their dispute, there is that bit of interaction he has with um, with the high priest, Ananias. And did you notice how Paul begins the whole thing? My conscience is clear, right? He says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Let me ask you. If you were on trial right now, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would you be able to say that line? My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. That's tough, isn't it? And yet, that's one of the things that we see throughout Paul's writing. He comes back to this kind of thing again and again and again. That what he's doing, he is all in on this. And so he is, uh, this is later in the book, you know, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God a man. Does that mean he does everything perfectly? No, but he's got that constant relationship with God. He's constantly going back to him uh, when he messes up, but he's trying as best he can to do the things Jesus is calling him to do, to not do the things that Jesus is calling him not to do because of that relationship and because of the love and the grace that he has received already, and that's what he wants to live out of. He knows what it's like to live apart from God. He doesn't want to do that anymore. And so he says, look, you guys may be accusing me of things, But I can tell you right now, what I have been doing is what God has been telling me to do. So there you go. And of course, the high priest does not like this. Slap that guy. So they do. Paul, of course, does not like being slapped (laughs) and responds accordingly by saying, you whitewashed wall. Now, you know what he's referring to here? This is something that Jesus talked about with the, the Pharisees. 
and he actually called them whitewashed tombs. This comes in a uh, section where he talks about two things. One is the whitewashed tombs because he says, you know, it's like you've got all these rotting bones on the inside of the tomb. It's nothing but death in there, and yet you've painted it all pretty. So on the outside it looks good, but inside it's full of death. So that's what your life is like. That's kind of what Paul is referring to. The other example, which I love, that Jesus gives is like uh, you wash the outside of the cup and the bowl, but you leave the inside dirty. I don't know about you, but when you're doing dishes at your house, you get a, a cereal bowl the kids have left. They didn't rinse it. It's all stuck on the inside. That stuff's hard to clean. But, you know, what's easy is the outside because, hey, that's what everybody's going to see when it's in the cabinet anyway, right? Much easier to clean, so why don't we just clean the outside, put it back away, no problem. You get the illustration. (laughs) Jesus is saying, that's what you guys are doing with your lives, and it's what's on the inside. (laughs) Whether that's dirty or clean, that is of much more importance than on the outside. Nobody wants to grab a dirty cereal bowl (laughs) out of the cabinet. That's disgusting. So uh, this is what Paul is referring to. And why is he calling this guy a whitewashed wall when he orders him to be struck? Because he sits there looking good. He's got his robes on. He's in the position to cast judgment on somebody else. And yet, he himself is not following the very law that he is accusing Paul of breaking. He is not presuming that Paul is innocent until he's convicted, which actually is something that goes back into uh, Old Testament law. They are supposed to have these trials to determine if somebody actually is guilty or not. And they're not to treat them like they're guilty until that. He's not doing that. When Paul walks in the door, they've already decided he's guilty. Strikes him on the mouth first, uh, first thing out of the gate. And so that's why Paul says, you sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So he's pointing out the hypocrisy of this whole situation. But then Paul, trying to keep his conscience clear, when they point out, you know, that's the high priest. Oh, sorry. And why does he kind of backpedal here? He's trying to keep his conscience clean. He wants to do what is right. And he actually says, I did not realize that it was, he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Now, there's some people who will argue that Paul was just being sarcastic here. I don't think so. I think he's being genuine. I think he genuinely means, I know that I'm not supposed to speak evil about him, and so had I known that that's who this was, I wouldn't have done it. something there for us today politically as well, by the way, as far as speaking uh, evil about the ruler of your people. And that, by the way, is not that's not only a singular ruler that applies to various rulers. So whoever the highest ruling authority is that you find easy to take jabs at from the opposing party. Let's be careful. Let's be careful with our words. Um, get into that a little bit as well in a second. We've got to get to this. This is the heart of the whole thing. This is when Paul 
knowing that some of them are Sadducees and some are Pharisees. He knows the political situation. And how does he, how does he exploit the political, political tensions? He knows what's going to divide them, right? He knows they completely disagree on this issue of resurrection, which that is what Paul is all about, is the resurrection, right? You look at 1 Corinthians 15. I highly recommend it. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the hope that Paul has in the resurrection, that we will be raised to new life. And it's all centered on the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, if that didn't happen, oh man, everything that we're doing is useless. Everything we're doing is futile. In fact, you should pity us most of all if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But he was raised from the dead. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that means that we also will be raised from the dead. And so this is not only a kind of wishful thinking eternal life, this is a confidence in the eternal life that is to come based on the resurrection of Jesus. Now that's a little different than the resurrection that the uh, Pharisees are looking at. They don't have this belief in uh, the resurrection of Jesus to ground their confidence. But still, that's kind of one of their political platform pieces. You know, they, they hold to that. The Sadducees don't. Paul knows this. And so he just says, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection from the dead. True. But intentionally worded in such a way as to point out the difference between these two groups. And so the next thing you know, instead of being against Paul, condemning him, they're now at each other. Right? You see this? And here's the problem with politics as usual. While Paul is able to exploit that right there, politics as usual does what happens here. This is not a new thing. But what happens here is they start going at each other, rehearsing, I'm sure, all the same sound bites they'd all been familiar with over the years as they'd argued this point over and over again. Nobody's convincing anybody, but they've got to prove they're right. And so they start going over it again and again, but it gets so violent. Did you hear what happened? It gets so violent that Paul's life is actually in danger. And what's crazy about this whole situation is there's only one person in that whole place, besides Paul himself, I'm sure, there's only one person who actually cares about Paul. You see who it was? It's the Roman. It's the Roman. The Pharisees didn't care about Paul. They just cared that others believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't care about Paul. They just cared that nobody believes in the resurrection. And so they had their political beliefs that were, became more important than the human being standing at the center of the trial. Does that sound, does that sound familiar when Jesus was on trial? Does that sound familiar to what happens every day today? This is politics as usual. For we argue the points and we forget the people. And that's where I go back to that, what we read to open with uh, from C.S. Lewis. We've got to remember that people are important. To respect people, even when we don't agree with them, when we don't like them, when we think that they are teaching the wrong things. Fine. We can talk about how we disagree. But we cannot, we cannot treat people like they're not people. 
If we genuinely believe that every person is created in the image of God, fallen, yes. Like Alistair Begg said, you know, it's like the castles in Scotland that are, you know, have crumbled down, they're ruins. And he said, you know, you go and the lights aren't on, they're not on anymore. The, the fires aren't lit, the tapestries are not hanging on the wall. The stones have crumbled down, he said, but you still go and you still see them because they are glorious. They're ruins, but they're glorious ruins. Because that's what people are. And if we only see the ruined part and we don't see the glorious part, we're missing the image of God in people. When Jesus said that in the end there will be the, uh, the king will come and he'll separate as people, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And do you remember he doesn't say that I will say to the, those on the right, blessed are you for you forwarded all the right emails and you voted all the right ways and you said all the right things about all the right candidates and you convinced other people not to vote for those horrible politicians. None of that happens. What he says is what you did for the least of these. You did for me because you recognize the divine image and imprint on every human life. Not just those in power, but everybody. But everybody. And as you showed love and care and respect and concern for them, you showed that you actually are mine. And when you disrespect them, even if you get all your words right, you show that you're not mine. Because one of the things it means to be a Christian is to recognize that divine image in everyone, that everyone is to be treated with respect because they are a creation of God. It is far too easy in our political culture today to miss that and to get swept up and to start thinking that elections and politics and direction of the country, etc., is more important than the people that God has created and has created to be in relationship with him and forever. How do those even compare? Now, before I go any further, let me just say, I am not at all advocating political disengagement. And that's where we tend to miss it, where we say, well, if we can't do politics as usual, then maybe we just can't do politics at all. That's not it. But we have to do politics a different way. We have to be engaged in a way that still respects people. And we have to know where our hope really lies. It doesn't lie in politics. But as Paul said, I'm on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. That's where our hope is. And we say, but if... If we stop doing what everybody else is doing, the other side's going to do it and then they're going to win. Maybe. Maybe. This is the situation we see in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come at Jesus and they're armed with swords and with clubs. And so Peter pulls out a sword and says, if they're going to come at him with swords, I better fight back with a sword because if I don't, they're going to win. They're going to kill him. And Jesus says, yeah, now put it away. We're not going to do it like that. But in the kingdom of God, sometimes losing isn't losing. 
and we have to have a different perspective. We have had a perspective far too long that it's win at all costs in the ways of the world. And I don't think we're often calculating the real costs. Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? If you were to reword this in the terms of the politics of today, what good would it be if we were to win an election at the cost of our souls? Or even at the cost of the souls around us? It is not worth that cost. And so we can't fight the way the world fights. We can't fight like the Pharisees and Sadducees fighting where we lose track of the people that we are called to love and to care for. At the end of this, Paul has stood nearby Jesus himself. He's almost torn up by the way things went here. And Jesus stands near him and says, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I mean, that's kind of a helpful message. But we just saw how things went in Jerusalem. And Jesus is not saying things are going to go better when he gets to Rome. But as you've done it here, you're going to do it there. But I think what we see here is Jesus is still with him in the midst of it. That Paul is still going through this with a clear conscience as he's still walking with Jesus through these things that are very hard and they're not normal. In fact, they're so not normal that not the Pharisees or the Sadducees really get it. But Jesus says, take courage. Jesus stands near Paul. He says, take courage. You're doing the right thing. Everybody else is missing it, but you're doing the right thing. You were supposed to do this here in Jerusalem, and you've done that now. And I want you to know you're going to do that also in Rome. Jesus will be with him there too. So, I told you we'd come back to this. This is the most important election of your lifetime. It is. But less because of who ends up winning the elections and more about how you individually and we as a church choose to walk through this. What decisions will we make, not just on the, on the ballot, but what decisions will we make about what we will and will not pass on about others, about what we will or will not say, about how, what we will or will not do regarding how we treat one another, even should they be our political enemies? Because Jesus told us what to do with enemies. It's a four-letter word. It starts with L. Just think on that one. In the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.